Let's turn now to God's Word. Um, The book of John, and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, right into the middle of that chapter, um, the section that goes from uh, verse 11 to verse 18. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to spend some time considering that. John chapter 20, uh, I'll begin reading at verse 11, and listen carefully because this is God's holy word. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she, ta- and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in the word. Our God, as you have spoken the world and the planets and the stars, the moons, all of space and matter into being. You have spoken this word into being. You have spoken through your spirit life into our hearts by the will of Christ. And now by your powerful, uh, magnificent word, I pray that you would instruct us and teach us, comfort us, convict us, show us the way uh, that we would walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this sermon that I'm going to preach uh, right now, it was originally preached as a part of a sermon series called uh, Questions God Asks that we did at Trinity Church Seattle around the end of last year. And uh, it was an, maybe 10 or 12 weeks long, and each sermon focused on a question that God asks someone uh, in, in, the, in a, a, a biblical narrative. Um, and so, you know, think of when, when God uh, shows up to Adam and, and Eve in the garden right after they fell and, and asks, where are you? Or he, he comes to Job at the end of the, the, the book of Job, if you're familiar with that book. And uh, Job has been complaining to God about injustice all throughout. And, and God responds to Job and says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? And, and, and questions like that. Um, and there were also questions that Jesus asks in the, in the gospel narratives, uh, many of them profound and, and really thought-provoking questions, uh, this being one of them, of course. Now, and, and one of the things that throughout that sermon series I remember catching me off guard time and time again is the fact that God asks us questions in the first place. 
You know, shouldn't it be that we get to ask God the questions? He's the one that knows everything, right? Um, and, and there are enough questions in the world, enough question marks in your life. Why do we need more? You know, because often the way that God approaches us with a question is uh, it, 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 they're, they're not obvious ones. Sometimes they're questions that don't have obvious answers at all. Sometimes he doesn't even give an answer to the question that he asks us when we struggle with the answer. But still, asking hard questions, asking thought-provoking questions, asking questions that change our perspective and our focus is one of the surefire ways that God is going to communicate with his people. And it happens all throughout Scripture. And we wonder, why? Well, it, it, it might actually be that the most important thing about God's questions is not necessarily the answer, per se, to his questions, but that the, the, the most transformative part of the question and answer process when God is the questioner is the fact that he has come to ask us at all. There's something remarkable in each of these, uh, th these narratives throughout Scripture where God comes and asks a question of, of someone where his presence in that situation changes things as much as the question itself. And it's as the, the individual, and in, in our case, Mary Magdalene, struggles with this question, trying to figure it out, that she's, maybe without even knowing it at first, struggling before the face of God, wrestling with God, as it were, coming to the point where uh, her, her trust is in, in, enlightened, and God shows her exactly what she needs to see. And sometimes it's just one word spoken by his voice that drowns out, every, that drowns out a thousand words. And that's certainly true of our passage today. All right, so I, I want to look at this question and answer process here before us under uh, four headings. The mourner, uh, the messengers, the Messiah, and the missionary. The mourner, the messengers, the Messiah, and the missionary. So first of all, the mourner. The mourner. Mary Magdalene. She was uh, one of Jesus' closest friends. She loves Jesus. She loves him. Uh, not romantically, of course, but devotionally. Every time Mary comes up, uh, in the gospel narratives, she's consistently one who's worshiping Jesus when he's around. She drops everything to, to, to hang on his every word. She, she cares for him. She, uh, she, she's willing to go against the grain and to stand out in a crowd as one who honors Jesus. And in a way, that's also true here as we pick up the narrative in verse 11. But it's a very dark scene. You know, this particular Sunday morning was a busy one for, for Mary. If, if you had read the previous section, you, you would have read of how busy she was up till this point. You see, the previous day was, we could say, the most hopeless Jewish Sabbath that had ever happened, because the day before that, Friday, was the day that Mary and the other disciples saw Jesus die. The disciples must have thought it was an unfortunate providence 
that Jesus died on a Friday because the next day was Saturday, the Sabbath, the day of no work, and they had work to do after Jesus died. And, and I hope you're not squeamish because Jesus was going to decompose. And, and, and back in those days, they had customs for embalming bodies to prevent the, and, and delay the full putrid decay of the body so that the remains could be properly honored. And for someone like Jesus, who his disciples would want to honor, that's what they're anxious about at this point. Imagine it feverishly delaying the inevitable decomposition of your God. It's the only form of worship that they have left at this point. And so before daybreak, Mary and at least one other woman from uh, Matthew's gospel, we're told, they, they go and they buy spices and they bring the spices necessary for this embalming process and they head to the tomb. But there's a problem. When they get there, the body is gone. How did that happen? Well, then the pace picks up as they run back to the other disciples. The sun may be beginning to, to come up over the horizon. Mary runs to tell the disciples. Peter and John run back to the tomb, and they're faster runners than she is, apparently. John gets there first, and then Peter next. They see the scene. They see the empty tomb. They, it's a little unclear here. They come to their own conclusions, but then for some reason they leave. And as Mary, maybe out of breath, catches up to them, catches up to the tomb. John's narrative doesn't go with the other disciples. It stays with Mary, and Mary is here. She finds herself not sure of where to go or what to do, standing at this empty tomb, and she's alone. And she feels alone. You know, the morning rays of the sun that, have, that has now surely come up over the horizon, and as the sun keeps getting higher in the sky, the, the, the temperature getting warmer, the decay of the body more and more, uh, it just coming soon, the sun is mocking her as she can't find this body, and maybe she's reminded of the grief that she has in the first place that Jesus has died, and she, she succumbs to it, and she the text tells us, cries the kind of cries that you allow yourself to cry when you're all alone and you're really sad. Loud, bitter tears. And no one hears her. No one comes to comfort her immediately. You know, maybe, maybe we feel for her. We, we, we want to say, we see you, Mary. We, we, we sympathize with you, but she can't hear us, of course. But you know, the bad news for us is that it's not hard to enter her experience and, and to know what she feels in this moment. Because what this morning did for Mary and for her, for the other disciples, it has done to all of us. Because that's what death does to all of us. It isolates, it saddens, it brings grief. And we have traditions just like Mary does, special ways to remember and immortalize, memorialize the dead especially in those early days of grief. Uh, those, those traditions are, are special, they're important, they're meaningful and precious, but it doesn't change the fact that our precious loved one, mother, father, son, niece, is gone. And we can be haunted by the question that surely haunted Mary, what is the true meaning of these ways to memorialize if this is where life goes? And if the same thing will happen to me, then what is my life now? Is not all of life just a funeral procession? 
in these ways, and I'm sure in other ways maybe that you've experienced more particularly in your life, death is this open-ended question to which there are no words to answer. And grief threatens us because we have to come to this place where we sit in a bitter tension between life and death and we can't make sense of it. And Mary's there. That's where Mary is. It brings us to the next point. The messengers. The messengers. You know, I, I don't have to tell you that Mary is not in a fun place right now. She's not. She doesn't want to be there. No one else wants to be there with her. That's probably why she's alone, at least in part. But why is she there? And specifically, why is she there so close, lingering to the place of death? Well, it's because she wants to be near Jesus, isn't it? Even in his death, she wants to draw close to her, which is faith of, 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 a, of an amazing kind. To accept this place of the tension between life and death, to avoid distraction from it because she wants to be near to Jesus. You know, sometimes faith in Christ will take us there. To a place where you most don't want to be, where circumstances and surroundings give you no hope at all, but you're willing to be there because that's what it takes to be close to him. And I get that's the, that's the sense, or that's the reason why she actually goes closer. She looks into the tomb. She looks death straight in the face. She wants to gaze into the bitter reality of his death. Of course, with the, the, the nightmarish memories of the cross still on her mind. And her faith is bringing her there, and it's actually the right direction to go. In a way, she's rewarded by it, because what does she see? We're told she sees two angels. Two angels. Now, a, a word on that. Uh, in, in the Bible, the word used for angel, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, means a messenger. And the, the, these angels, these messengers are from God. They've come representing him with his authority. Uh, angels sometimes come to act on God's behalf, but most often they're there to speak for God. The, the main intention of an angel is to reveal something, to bring a message. A, a message. And, and they tend to show up right before or right after God has done something or is about to do something huge to save or help his people. And so even before these angels speak here, those of us, and, and, and Mary as well, who's familiar with the scriptures, should be able to sense that God is up to something. There's something more going on than meets the eye. Maybe God is far less dead than the circumstances seem. And, and through these angels, God has something to say to Mary and to us. That Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. That now is not a day of mourning, but rejoicing. The question is, will Mary hear that? Or, and, and, and do you and I hear and see that? Or, or is it possible that grief and this tension that we feel overshadows even the greatest gospel message? Well, the, the angels are messengers, and what do they say? Puzzlingly, they ask Mary a question. Woman, why are you crying? Which is, admittedly, a subtle approach. Um, th they could have just said, Jesus is risen from the dead. But they ask her about her grief. Um, 
You know, you, you wonder if this is the best approach for getting this news across to Mary. Yeah, but remember, their job is to reveal. And, and evidently, the approach that they take is because by God's will, they're there to reveal the life of Jesus by first revealing to Mary what is going on inside of her. To, to reveal to Mary something about her heart. Maybe so that she can better see the life of Jesus. And her answer is very revealing, isn't it? She says, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She's fixating on this presenting problem, that the body is gone. And with anxiety rising and frustration mounting, grief consuming her, uh, you've been there and I've been there too, haven't we? You know, there's this sense in which all creation is living vicariously through Mary at this point. Uh, feeling what she feels, wondering what she's wondering. Because since the Garden of Eden, the whole world has been stuck here. Uh, life is hard, everything breaks, and all things die. And what's the answer? Is there one? And, and it's compounded by the fact that Jesus was to Mary exactly what he was to the whole world. The, the, the hope of all creation, the one from God sent to bring freedom from death. And now, God's Messiah, our hope, and Mary's hope is dead. And the whole world is saying with Mary, evil, death, and sadness have taken away my Lord. How could this happen? We thought it was going to be different this time. And I don't even know where his body is. That's why I'm crying. That's why I'm alone and helpless. And you're asking me? You're actually asking me why I'm crying? What kind of question is that, God? So, think about, real briefly, maybe recently, what in this world, what in your life has caused you grief and frustration? Uh, what, what has hurt you? What has angered you recently? H have you had a conversation with God, something like that, when you were there? And, you know, maybe, you know, there's, there's multiple places to go from there. Maybe you stormed off. And maybe you shut off and shut down and looked for that distraction because you just couldn't handle it anymore. Maybe you kept going. You kept pressing God for, for why and, and came to some kind of resolution with him. But, th but think of the question he's asking. Why are you crying? What is that designed to reveal in us? What if it's designed to reveal something like, you know, Mary, you're crying as if in grief, which is understandable, but, but, but fixated on the lack of Jesus' dead body, are you maybe missing what this empty tomb really means? That brings us to the next point, the Messiah. You see, as Mary wrestles with God's question, I don't know whether it's out of frustration or out of just wanting to storm off, but for whatever reason, she turns and she sees a man. And he looks like a gardener. Uh, now, we're told that it's Jesus. So, so, we, so, we get, so we get to cheat a little bit. We know who this is. We know it's Jesus. But she doesn't. She can't see him, strangely. 
It's not entirely clear why she can't see him. Picture her squinting, trying to figure out who this figure is against the backdrop of a bright, sunny morning. Maybe it's the transcendent brightness of his newly resurrected body that's obscuring his identity. Maybe it's just the fact that he is standing directly behind the sun and she can't see who he is. She can't make out who he is. But also, to be fair to her, remember uh, who she would be expecting to see at this time, when she, like, or, or, or what, what she's expecting Jesus to look like at this moment. She's not looking for an able-bodied young man. She's looking for the body of uh, a, a man in his early to mid-30s who was tortured and killed 36 hours ago. So she's not expecting to see someone that looks like this and identify him as Jesus. And so she says to the gardener, or, or, or the gardener says to her, rather, interestingly, the same question that God asked her through the messengers. Woman, why are you weeping? And then I imagine there's a, a, a pause, not long, but long enough for Jesus to adjust the tone in his voice and then ask a follow-up question. Whom are you seeking? And Mary answers uh, very much in the same way that she did before. I'm looking for the, the body of Jesus, but it's been stolen away, and I don't know where it is. I can't find it. If you took the body of Jesus away, gardener, please show me where it is so that I can go and deal with it, because that's my job right now. And, and, and what's that answer? It's, it's, it's the most revealing one yet. What is that answer? It's, it's still that same faith that has remained strong, amazingly. She's still wanting to honor Jesus. But what's missing in her faith? Hope. It's faith without hope. I want to find Jesus. Finding Jesus will save me. But he's dead. Isn't, isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? Faith that cries out to the Lord to help her, but a hopelessness that still believes he's dead. You know, because of the present reality of death, faith in a resurrected Jesus is not easy. It's not easy for her, and it's so hard often for us, isn't it? And, and, and maybe you guard yourself against hope, that, that you will see evidence of his resurrection around you because you don't want to be disappointed. But, but what is Jesus saying? And he says this to us too. Mary, are you really looking for a dead Jesus? You're really looking for a dead Jesus? Do you remember who I am? So can we hear that this morning? Do you see how Jesus is gently, persistently trying to get her unstuck? So what's his next move? Well, we've come to the point in the text where everything turns. Jesus does something here that transforms the scene. Now, he didn't use a miraculous word per se he didn't uh, he didn't reach out and uh, do something amazing and like remove the unbelief from her in some astounding supernatural way if you were there and you would have seen it you didn't know any better you would have thought this is just a, a sort of a normal everyday interaction he said her name he said her name that's what did it that's what changed her mind, on the spot. That's what took her from grief and hopelessness to un, 
unshakable joy. And is, is that really all it took? Well, yeah. You see, she, she knew Jesus and Jesus knew her. They had an established relationship, time spent together. They had talked to one another. They had said each other's names on multiple occasions before, which means Jesus had a way of saying Mary's name. And, and she had a way of saying his name. And so when Jesus said her name as only Jesus could, that changed it. All of a sudden she knew it must be Jesus. And so she reciprocated and said his name, the only way that she knew how to say it. You know, when, when's the last time that you ran into someone that you know but didn't recognize them at first? And, and then maybe after speaking a little bit, it dawns on you and there's this awkward moment where you have to admit, oh, sorry, I, I, I know you, I forgot that you were you. You know, maybe they were wearing, wearing a hat or something and you didn't recognize them at first. But that actually happens a lot with Christ. Because Christ never really leaves us. He never really goes away. But we assume that he does. We think that he's not here. And, and, and sometimes he, he allows us to see when we're in a place where we don't think he's with us, where he's not present, he's not helping us. And, and we kind of like look over our shoulder and realize, oh, Jesus, you're here. I, I, I didn't see you there. And, and he reassures us, yes, I've been here the whole time. So I, I think we can really be helped by accelerating that realization. That, that realizing that Jesus is, is here with us realization. And the way to do that is, is kind of simple. It, it's, it's the same one that we see here from the text. You've got to know how to talk to and how to listen to Jesus. And to even make it personal, you know, in your Bible reading, in your prayer, to, to hear him say your name. What does it sound like for Jesus to say your name? What does it sound like to hear Jesus say your name? Now, from that question, you might assume that I'm talking about an extraordinary spiritual experience where we feel so close to Jesus that it's almost like we're there with him in, 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 the, in the Father's nearer presence hearing his voice. But based on this passage, I'm actually talking about the opposite. You see, where do you most resonate with Mary in the first part of the passage? That even if you turned around to find him right next to you, you wouldn't recognize him. Probably some place where, uh, in your life where anxiety or, or grief or stress overwhelms you and all you can think about is just that narrow thing and, and everything else is, is, is out of your sight, even God's presence. Think about the places last week where discouragement, restlessness made you feel helpless. The places where you most need to hear his voice, the places where you most need to be reassured by scripture, the places where you most need to stop and pray, but often forget. That, based on this passage, that's when he is speaking. That's when he is near. It's not just when we feel close to him. You see, what the resurrection of the Messiah has done, the fact that Jesus is raised, the, the fact, uh, furthermore, that he's ascended and he's poured out his spirit on, on the world and especially on the church, is that he, it's as if he has turned his voice on in every place and to all of us, to all peoples. <coughs> especially 
to those who he loves. So maybe what I'm saying is that you don't need to do something more or learn something else other than to be assured that he is close. Maybe you need to take a breath, quiet down the noise in your mind for a moment, and be assured that Christ is near. Because he is speaking. He always is. He is alive as our great prophet and priest. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm alive. Don't worry, I'm here. I've come to comfort you, to be near you. I've come to give you my life. Even now, I've come to lead you. And no matter what you've done or where you've been, I will not let you go astray. I will not let you go too far so that I lose you. And even where you are right now, I've given you something wonderful to do. Which is where we go next and where the passage takes us. Our fourth point this morning is the missionary. Jesus commissions Mary as a missionary. Uh, in, in verse 17 and 18. Uh, Mary has her joy and life instantaneously restored as we've seen in this massive turning point. And what Jesus indicates is that what he wants to do is take what he's done in Mary's life and begin to do that across the whole world. Now, immediately, as, as this new reality takes effect, there's this new-ish tension. It, it, it's sort of just an expression, an expression of the same one from before. What's new? Mary's hope has returned. The world's hope has returned. Jesus is not just the Messiah come to die for our sin. He's the resurrected Messiah. He's alive. But still, death and sin linger on. So that tension between life and death still has to be reckoned with. And as Mary does so, verse 17 uh, is famously hard to make sense of. And we don't have, to, we don't have time to fully get into it. Uh, but Mary at this point has absolutely the appropriate response. is fitting to her character and it's appropriate to, to, to the risen Christ to fall down and worship. To cling to him. Physically, like that's the right thing for her to do. But what does Jesus tell her to do? You know, we could rephrase it, paraphrase it, something like this. Mary, I love your worship. Never stop doing that. But don't cling to me because you have work to do right now. And please don't worry. This is not the last time that I'm going to be with you. And because of what has just happened, you are not going to lose me again. You see, when I ascend to my Father and send my Spirit, I will cling to you. And not only that, but to everyone who believes in me, I will hold on because of the good news, but especially because of the good news that my people will spread. And I want you, Mary, to be the first. And he calls her as the first missionary. And, and, and we often fail to make this connection as closely as we should and, and as closely as the Bible makes it. You see, the reason that Jesus shows up in your life to help you and to reassure you of his presence is so that you would get up and go and show someone else how close Jesus really is. And he calls us to do that in whatever we are doing. Uh, you know, Mary is not an apostle. There's no indication that she is ever called to go and be an organized leader in the church. 
that's not who she is. That's not her calling. In fact, after the gospel narrative, she kind of falls off the face of the biblical map. But, you know, and by our way of looking at things, maybe that makes her something of a nobody. But yet it's as if everything that God has ever done in the world has been filtered down in the, in, in the biblical narrative through what Jesus has done to save the world and he takes all of that and puts it in Mary's hand and says, go, I want you to take this precious gift and tell the leaders of my, world, my new worldwide movement. It's amazing. And that's a great way to see yourself as you wake up tomorrow morning. That you have been given this amazing gift of this message of resurrected life and God gives it to you so you can spread it. And it doesn't always have to look like a bullhorn and a a three-point gospel sermon. In fact, for most of you, it won't look like that. It may just look like faithfulness in your workplace. Uh, Love in your relationships. You know, in my previous profession, before I got into ministry, uh, I was basically doing home renovations. Um, But I, I... I really didn't feel fulfilled in my work. Uh, I, I, it wasn't the calling that I felt called to. It was just sort of a job. Um, and I would often wake up early in the morning, uh, early enough to go drive into work, but be there early. And I would find a place, you know, a few blocks away from the work site and just sit in my car and try to spend some time in prayer and in the scripture, trying to, find, try, trying to spend time with Jesus because I had this sense that I need to spend time with him, dedicated time with him, and the day would not be worth it if I didn't spend time with him. Uh, and, the, and, and some of those times were really sweet, but the clock always ticked. You know, the clock always got closer and closer to 8 or 8.30 or 9 or whatever time we were beginning work that day. And it was sort of this foreboding sense that oh, I only have 15 10, five, three minutes left with Jesus for the rest of the day. I got to make the most of it. And it was really anxiety producing. And, and, and yes, personal devotion and, and dedicated time in prayer and scripture is very important for our spiritual growth and even for our witness. But frankly, where I was immature at that point and where I, I wish I had done a much better job is here, seeing Jesus and hearing him speak into not just my time in prayer and scripture, but also my time at work. Like it it would have been like how how much different it would have been for me. And frankly, uh, I would have been a much better witness for him, a better evangelist and missionary at, at work if I had heard Jesus say, you know, Johnny, I love your worship, but it's time to get up. It's time to go because there's a sheet of plywood over there and some two-by-fours that you need to nail that thing to. And then there's 30 more. And that's worth doing. For today, that is worth doing. And Johnny, remember that there are other people that you're going to work with today, human beings made in God's image, and they are struggling in the same tension between life and death that you are, but they have no hope because they don't know me. So I want you to go and be faithful. And I want you to show them what it looks like to be a faithful Christian in your workplace. And I will go with you, and I will be with you, I will help you, and when you need help, just keep an open ear. 
because I'm with you, and I'm alive, and I'm speaking. So this week, you are going to go out into a world every day, and you're going to encounter frustration and grief and sadness and maybe even death. And if you have any faith in Jesus at all, by his grace, he speaks your name. The resurrected Christ speaks your name and calls you as an ambassador for him. So how will you speak and act in light of that? And you know, if you need help, you can listen for him. Because he's speaking your name. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and and Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have called us in Christ, by the power of your Spirit, you've called each of us by name to belong to you, to be your children, to, and to live like it. I thank you that you are patient with us. I, I, I thank you that you sympathize with us in our weaknesses, in our grief, in, in, in the sadness that we feel. I thank you that you are good and that you have overcome all of our enemies. You have even overcome death in Christ. And that you have given us your new life. And that you have given us a job to do. And so for this week, for the circumstances we face, I pray that you would give us the grace to to shine as lights in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.